This podcast is produced by Yizzy Research, whose mission is to do research and help others do the same. Visit us at yizzyresearch.com. While you're there, sign up for the mailing list to stay updated. Michelle McDonald is an experienced market research expert. Michelle has been a mentor of mine for a few years. I had the pleasure of meeting her through an organization called Women in Research, also known as WIRE. When we check in with each other, we have many conversations about research, careers, life, and professional development. When I decided to produce this podcast, it was natural for me to invite her as I wanted to share a sample of our conversations with you all. In the first portion of our chat, Michelle discusses the following, what she does as a client director on key accounts, what it means to work at a digital first research company, custom research engagement versus scalable market research solutions, why she loved teaching students as a middle school and high school teacher, but still transitioned into market research, interviewing for entry-level jobs with years of professional work experience, how she did market research without having done it before at her first market research role, and cultivating expertise through time, exposure, and working at different levels. Welcome to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for aspiring researchers, current researchers, and research enthusiasts. I'm your host, Imani, also known as Izzy, and I am the founder, CEO, and principal researcher of Yizzy Research, a boutique research agency providing UX research services, career coaching, and of course, this podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. I was just telling you, I know when we spoke offline that we always have so many conversations. I'm happy to share you with other people. You're very sweet. Thank you. (laughs) So let's get started with what you currently do now. So you work as a group senior vice president at Metrics Lab. So can you start by telling us one, what Metrics Lab is and two, what you do there? Sure. So Metrics Lab is a market research company. We were founded in the Netherlands in 1999 uh, and really sort of a new and innovative type of research back then. It was born in the dot-com age. So we always talk about ourselves as being digital first and innovative. We're global by nature, uh, sort of born in that era and in the Netherlands where you had to be global from day one. And uh, we've evolved over the last 20 years into a global full service agency. Uh, so we work with all, all the big advertisers out there, all the big brands. We do a lot of work in what we call brand engagement. So uh, branding and communications, and then also on the product development, product innovation side of the business. So we kind of have those two pillars that we work in. And in terms of your, your role specifically, what do you do like day to day? So on any given day, it's a little crazy, of course. Uh, So my role is as a client director, uh, which basically means that I manage account relationships um, with some key accounts. Because I'm also a group lead, I have uh, four client directors who report into me. And so I do get involved with supporting them as needed, whether it's on pitches or proposals or getting things through the system. Uh, And then, of course, working with the research team to actually execute on the projects. 
And you mentioned that Metrics Lab was digital first. What does that mean to be digital first? So it, a couple of things, you know, it started as a dot-com and it evolved. So we talk about digital first in terms of how we go about our business. So internally, we use cloud-based platforms for knowledge sharing. We program in a cloud-based system. We do or provide digital delivery whenever possible to our clients. And certainly digital media is really important to our business. And so we do a lot of uh, creative testing, in-market effectiveness testing of digital media and digital marketing. Really cool. So you really, like you said, you work with a lot of big brands and the focus is of course on like their digital properties mostly. So in terms of like your most memorable projects, what have you worked on? And this can be in your capacity as um, a direct, as a vice president at Metrics Lab, or even in the past when you were doing more of the actual research, what are some of your most impactful projects? Uh, I would say I get most excited when I've been involved with the development of new solutions. So not so much the one-off projects, but the development of a new research program or tool that can be scaled across projects, across countries, across clients. And so I've had a few experiences there where I've been able to do that. Typically it's partnering, not just with the research team uh, and in metrics lab, we call them impact consultants in, other companies, we've called them, you know, methodology experts or practice leads, um, partnering with those guys, and then almost always partnering with somebody from marketing sciences or advanced analytics, because honestly, that's where you can get to something that's really meaty and cool and different and, and differentiated. So you mentioned that um, one of the types of projects you enjoyed doing was like working on and creating and scaling research programs. What is that like? What do you mean by that? So, you know, when you're doing a custom research engagement, you're thinking of what are the specific objectives in front of me and how do I best answer those questions? But when you're looking to develop a solution that's more scalable, you also want to take into account what are those potential questions that could happen down the line? How is this something that we can replicate what we're doing here, uh, replicate it in another country, replicate it for another client? Uh, so it becomes just a, a bigger, more strategic discussion of what are all of the pitfalls, if you will, that you might encounter when trying to scale and also where will be potential efficiencies down the line. So it, it just takes a little bit more of foresight and creativity, which is why those projects stand out to me. So with your job now at Metrics Lab, is it your job to actually scale out the research or scope it for clients? Or is that already done by the time the project comes to you? No, I'm the one who is discussing it with the client and proposing the design. So, you know, within Metrics Lab, as in some, several other, you know, larger research companies, uh, we have solutions that are templated that we can tap into, uh, and those are already scaled. But then there's the customization or the evolution of those solutions that might require different design ideas. So, you know, for example, if a client wants to uh, test new advertising before it goes on air, so copy testing, 
we have a solution for that. Uh, and it's, it's pretty tried and true, and it can be a relatively quick conversation with the client in terms of what do you need to learn about the advertising? Usually it's either you know, which ad works best for us or which one delivers on the message the best. Um, but what gets exciting is when you're talking about how do we implement a new copy testing program for a global organization. So how are we going to roll that out? What learnings are we going to expect from the program, not just for an individual ad, but across a hundred ads or a thousand ads that we might test? Uh, and how are we going to identify trends? How are we going to socialize that in the organization, establish action standards, those sorts of things. So that becomes more interesting. And then the other thing is, if you think of advertising right now, there's new ad formats coming out feels like daily sometimes, but you know, every few months there's some new ad format. So it's taking what we've always done and applying it in a new way and figuring out, okay, well, what, where should we be placing the investment to develop a, a new solution and how do we um, craft our existing solutions into this new format? So in order to scale these client projects, it seems like you need to have a healthy knowledge of market research and how to actually do market research to know what to suggest, but also client management experience as well. Do you think that's a fair way to summarize it? I do. Um, I think I am fortunate in that my background is both on the custom research side. I sort of grew up in a smaller organization where I was able to roll up my sleeves and do everything. Um, as well as being in larger organization where the resources are there. If you don't have the experience of being a research project manager or project director, as well as a client manager, you know, a lot of times, and certainly it's the case in Metrics Lab, we have people that we can tap into. So then the skill is really about knowing who to reach out to, uh, to answer the questions correctly. So before you became a market researcher, you were a teacher. So how did you make the jump? How and why did you make the jump from being a teacher to being a market researcher? So I, I loved teaching. I loved the students. Amazing. Um, but there was a lot of question in my mind of what else was out there. Um, it also just timing wise was sort of the right moment to explore and check out the world. And so as is my personality, I did a ton of research of all different industries and all different you know, skills that might be required or applied and lots and lots of investigation, lots of interviews and exploration and ultimately landed in market research. A friend of mine was already in the industry and was like, Michelle, this is so clearly you. <laughs> you love data, you love research, you love investigating clearly. Um, why don't you go for it? And so I interviewed with a couple of companies and somebody took a chance on me and uh, here I am. Um, I think there's a lot of overlap between what I do now and what we as an industry do with education, actually. Uh, anybody who's been in research knows, you know, there are those times that you can be really excited about the data, but the the art comes from crafting it in a story, engage people who are not necessarily data people. And if you think about you know, teachers in schools, they're taking a subject that usually is very exciting to the teacher and not so exciting to all of the students and trying to come up with a way to explain it 
that the kids will understand and get excited for. So we do a lot of that in research. And when you were a teacher, which grades did you teach? I uh, grade seven through 12. So I did two years in middle school and four years in high school. So when you were, so as you were transitioning from being a middle and high school teacher to becoming a market researcher, what was that transition like? So was it, you mentioned that you had a friend that was in the field already, but when you were applying for jobs, what was that like? Do you remember that? Was it difficult? Was it relatively easy? Did you feel like, you know what, hey, maybe this is not for me. I'll go back to teaching. Do you remember what you were thinking as you were trying to transition? Yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, I think the, the experience was interesting in that as I was interviewing, I was essentially interviewing for entry-level jobs, but I already had work experience. And so I was definitely bringing something to the table that somebody fresh out of college wouldn't bring. You know, I already had knowledge of the workplace and how to interact and how to, you know, show up on time, get my work done, work independently, like all those sorts of things. I just didn't have the direct experience within market research. And so it was through all of that, you know, those interviews and trying to figure it out that I realized that I was bringing something very valuable to the table that even though I didn't know market research, I certainly knew how to be an adult, which sounds terrible for, you know, 22 year olds trying to get into business, but it, it really was value that I hadn't recognized when I first started on the whole journey. And how long did it take you to transition from being a teacher to being a market researcher? Um, So I got my first market research job and finished teaching, I think about a week apart. So it it was pretty fast. I would say the first year in research was hard. Um, it was adjusting to an all new environment and to new expectations and, um, you know, wanting to be expert at something because again, I wasn't, you know, used to being on the bottom rung anymore. Um, so I wanted to be expert and I wasn't, and that made me question, oh my God, am I going to get there? How am I ever going to get there? So there was a lot of like, did I make the right choice? Is this for me? during that first year. Yeah, that seems to be common for a lot of people that transition into research, whether it's market research or consumer research. Would you say that you had a case of imposter syndrome? Would you say that? Of what syndrome? Imposter syndrome? Uh, I don't know how good I was at faking it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know so much imposter syndrome. It was just feeling like I wasn't satisfied in my old career and wanting to find what's going to be this, this thing that's going to work really well for me. And, you know, coming into market research and just questioning myself of, is this the thing? Is this how I want to, you know, build my career, build my life? So you mentioned that your first year as a market researcher was pretty challenging. How did you do market research without having done it before? <laughs> um, that's a great question. So I was, you know, certainly fortunate in that I worked with some really good people who were willing to teach me. Um, and I asked a lot of questions, uh, which 
nowadays I am very comfortable asking questions, but back then probably not so much. Um, but there were tasks that had to be done that I didn't understand why. Um, you know, so checking data, for example, you know, junior project person, I was checking data tabs all the time. And even just the way the data was run and how we got to data tabs seemed so crazy to me and so foreign. And so, you know, it was just asking, well, how are we getting from this questionnaire to a data set to data ta tables? Um, what are the things to watch out for? You know, in a data set, what is it that I'm looking for? What's good? What's bad? All of that. And then, of course, how to interpret the data. So there was just a lot of asking questions. And fortunately, I found some very patient people who were willing to explain. It sounds like when you first started your career as a researcher, you were more in the weeds. So you mentioned actually doing a lot of data analysis. And I imagine mm -hmm. at some point you also did some research as well. So did you do like interviews, focus groups, that kind of thing as well? Um, so, you know, back then it was, I, I first started off doing all survey research, um, but it wasn't all online. Everything was either telephone or even in person. So it was a much um, more labor intensive process and slower process. Um, so I wasn't ever conducting the actual interviews, but it certainly I wrote the surveys, um, you know, checked programs for if it was a telephone interview. Um, if we were doing like a mall interview back then, it would all be paper and pencil, which it, I, I sound very old when I talk about this. <laughs> right, I was gonna ask you, what's paper and pencil? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was quite a long time ago. I remember I, um, my second job in research, I showed up on the first day and I had on a cute skirt and sweater and was all set for you know a great day, and they're like, oh, "We're shipping out to the mall today, so we're all sitting on the floor and piling papers and marking up questionnaires, um, you know, for something simple like you're going to assess a new concept, and there's three different concepts you want to rotate exposure. The way that that used to be done was literally marking questionnaires of you know first exposure, second exposure, third exposure, and rotating it yourself so that when it went to the facility, that was all taken care of." And so it was very slow, um, but you learn a lot from that process of just the, the crux of why you're doing things the way you're doing and how it, how it gets done. So I'm just trying to imagine you in the mall, right, with the pen and paper. So when you would do market research, it sounds like you were with the other, a team of other researchers as well. Was, were you by yourself doing this? So I, I was not the person in the mall. Like I would be the person at the agency um, the way it is even today, like, you know, I'm the person at the agency de developing the program, and then there's a, a different facility at a mall conducting interviews, you know, intercepting people as they're shopping saying, hey, do you have five minutes? I'd like to ask you a few questions. Got it. So either way, it seems like when you were more of a junior researcher, you did a lot of the, the grunt work, like the data, the creating the actual surveys, getting the paperwork together. And now yes. it seems like as a vice president, you're more at the, the higher level. You're more on the client facing side where you're not as in the weeds. You're thinking more about the project mm -hmm. at a higher level. Yes. Yeah. I transitioned to more of the client management role um, probably when I was a few years in. I think one of the things that frustrated me when I was just starting out was, you know, doing all of the junior work 
made sense because you know I was new to the industry, but the skills that I felt I brought to the table, having been a teacher for all that time, were the presentations. I could stand up in front of a room and talk and describe a story and engage people and probe and ask questions and all that. And I wasn't using those skills when I was checking data tables or writing a questionnaire. And so I always felt like that's the piece that I couldn't wait to do. And you kind of, at that time, you, you know, had to get some work under your belt before you would start doing that. But yeah, it, a few years in, I transitioned specifically into more of a client management role and a sales role. And so that's when I pivoted. Yeah. So it seems like as you transition more into client management, ironically, as you got further away from being a teacher, you got closer to using those teacher skill sets. Absolutely. So at so now, would you say that you are an expert in market research? Now that I've been doing it for 20 years, yes. <laughs> so what is so what makes an expert to you? Like what makes you confidently say, yes, I am an expert in this? I think besides the time, it's the exposure to lots of different types of research uh, and different levels. Like I've worked with people just starting out, you know, on the client side, even like my clients are sometimes very, very junior. This is the first time that they're doing a brand tracking study. Um, but then I've also worked with CMOs and, you know, sort of working with the whole gamut gives me line of sight into how it's, how the research itself is used at every level of the organization. And, you know, certainly on the agency side, understanding how the projects develop, how they evolve, how we can get things through the shop in the most efficient way. Um, those are all, I think, the things that lead me to say that I'm an expert. <laughs> and so you mentioned that as in your career over the past 20 years, you've interacted with different types of methods. So you've mentioned survey research, brand tracking studies. What other methods have you either um, you've, um, you've managed or you've actually conducted? Uh, I'm, I'm actually trying to think of what I haven't done because I feel like I've been exposed to so much at this point. Right. Um, I've always worked primarily on the quantitative side, but I've tapped into amazing qualitative partners to execute on qual research. Um, I, I love, especially as quant has become more fast moving, more tactical, more of let's just ask some questions, get it out there. I love the opportunity to delve more deeply in qual and you know, truly bring not just a voice, but a, a face to the consumer, to the audience target. Uh, yeah, I mean, all sorts of methods I can't even begin to answer. I love doing, uh, and have done a lot of like discrete choice, choice-based conjoint, that sort of work. Um, it, I, I would say in the first part of my career, I did more on the new product development and innovation side. And over the last eight years or so, nine years, it's been more on the brand side. So not just the brand tracking, but certainly advertising and communications. Yeah, and you mentioned that quant research is more, you said, tactical, and it's more, um, it's more fast-paced. What do you mean by that? So it doesn't have to be. I mean, it can be very, very strategic. But a lot of times, the quant that we're doing ends up being 
how quickly can we get it in and out of field? Um, you know, get a yes or no answer, get a, a read on a thousand people in the United States. Um, you know, so it, it often does become very tactical. It certainly doesn't have to be, but I found that the appetite for big strategic research, the way that might've been done a few years ago, just seems to be falling away. And out of all the methods you've used over the past few years, what is your least favorite method? That's a great question. Uh, hmm. So I think in terms of methods, yeah, I have no idea. I, I'm like too much of a geek to get excited for all that stuff. Uh, I guess, you know, when it is just, uh, the, the biggest challenge is when the research itself seems on the surface simple, but you wanna get like a, a truly representative sample um, to do like an incidence check or size the population. Sometimes that can be a challenge in the current environment where we're dependent on online surveys and uh, sample and panel companies that are themselves trying desperately to uh, create representative basis. So I think that's probably a, a pain point. I don't know that I don't, don't like it though. <laughs> <laughs> so there isn't any method you, you, like I said, you like them all. So that's fair, I'll leave that one. Um, so in terms of like what market research actually is, a lot of people have different, different understandings of what market research is. So for you, what does market research mean to you and why is it so important that you decided, decided to do it as a career? That's a great question. So I think market research is gathering insights about consumers, about uh, pro professionals, but essentially an, a market or a target audience uh, in order to inform the development of better products and services. And so that you know plays out in so many different ways. But to me, it, it's really the focus on informing marketing, informing development. And why is it so important to you personally and professionally to understand these different demographics and audiences? It's fun. <laughs> I mean, it's just really interesting. Um, I think. I get jazzed when I'm working with a client who's developing a, a new product or servicing the world in a way that just makes it a better place. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, we're coming out with a new flavor of a cookie, but, you know, there, there's really good work that a lot of my clients are providing and, you know, services and products that just make people's lives easier. And I get very excited for being part of that. And over the course of your 20 years in market research, how has your understanding of market research changed? So when you first became a market researcher, fresh off of being a teacher, how was your understanding of market research different at that point than it is now? Yeah, at that point, it was much more about a question being asked and us finding the answer to that direct question. And now I think 
there's more of an opportunity to uh, look at what is the question behind the question and what actions can be taken, taken for the future. So it's much more forward-looking. It used to be much more reactionary. Um, you know, we talked about brand tracking. Brand tracking used to be always looking in the rearview mirror, what's happened over the last year and where does my brand sit as a result? And nowadays, any brand tracking measurement that I've been involved with, it's all about using what, what's happened in the past, but really to inform the future strategy, inform the growth, inform the path forward. What are the indicators for the momentum of the brand? What trajectory are we on? So it's just a, a, a different application and much more forward-looking as an as a industry, I would say more strategic and trying to be more of a partner as opposed to reacting to the needs of the marketing team or the reacting to the needs of uh, some sort of operations team or commercial team within a business. Uh, really demanding a seat at the table and providing value that way. Next, Michelle discusses tracking a brand when consumer sentiments are highly subjective and not standardized, social listening tools versus traditional survey-based brand tracking, challenges as a client manager and delegating to research teams, attention to detail as the best quality good researchers have, market research as trying to balance art and science, female leadership in market research and why there are fewer ladies in the C-suite, not democratizing data too much and why insights and market researchers are critical in interpreting data. You mentioned doing brand tracking studies a few times. So can you explain to us what a brand tracking study is? And like, what are some cases? Why would a brand come to you and say, hey, Michelle, we need a brand tracking study. Can you tell us more about that? So brand tracking is literally monitoring the perceptions of your brand uh, relative to your competitors over time. And it could be done every week, it could be done every month, it could be done a couple times a year. Um, it's one of those areas that, in my opinion, should be really important to a business. In most of my clients, it is paramount to their business. Uh, some of our clients will actually have incentives for their employees based on their brand performance. Uh, so when we're tracking a brand, if you step back and you think about the brands that you use every day, whether it's uh, you know, your Apple iPhone or your Tervis cup or Swell bottle or whatever, uh, you know the value of the brand on that water bottle, it, so much of it is wrapped up in the perceptions in somebody's brain and it's not tangible. And so, you know, the business can track sales and track uh, for their digital marketing. They can track click-throughs and all these sort of behavioral metrics that are out there. But to understand what people think of your brand and the impact that that then has on their decision-making, that's what you're going to get from a brand performance monitor or from a brand tracker. 
So how do you actually track a brand's performance or how do you track people's affinity for a brand? Like you mentioned, this is very qualitative. It's based on perception, which is not standardized. Like what I think about Coca-Cola is different than what you think about Coca-Cola, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. how do you actually track this? Do you, Does your team go into like Reddit and look at forums? Are they doing like sentiment analyses? How do they actually track this? So we are mostly dependent on survey research. And historically, that's the type of tracking that we've done. So, you know, we take exactly what you were saying in that, you know, there's so many different aspects of a brand and different categories have different drivers. Uh, We created an even playing field in our survey. So we standardize the uh, key metrics that we're going to monitor. We standardize the associations that we're going to ask about. And we will, you know, manage the sample each wave of the survey and dig in deep um, so that we can get to a, a not qualitative, but rather a quantitative understanding of brand perceptions. In survey research, even that approach has evolved over time. And that's where, you know, being digital is great but also being in this industry in 2020 as opposed to 2000 is great because you know it the tools that are available to us have evolved and so instead of just asking people's perceptions we can actually use uh, some metrics that are a little bit more system one oriented and getting at people's intuitive associations for a brand so instead of just asking how much do you love coca-cola we can actually Uh, employ some projective techniques to understand their relationship to Coca-Cola beyond what they're telling us in a very system two rational sort of way. And then certainly social media provides tons of really good data that we can analyze and, and create models that will then use the sort of buzz that we see happening in social as leading indicators of performance. And so while most of my clients in my little world here are not ready to walk away from survey research, more and more they are using social listening tools to act as indicators and and draw those parallels to what we already learn in brand tracking, survey-based tracking. So it sounds like survey research is, at least as of right now for many of your clients, survey research is the translator, so to speak, from qualitative um, sentiments that people have about a brand and making and translating it into something more standardized. And you also mentioned um, social listening tools. So can you talk more about what a social listening tool is um, and how you mentioned it seems like some of your clients, the more like old school clients, I imagine, probably have a hard time transitioning into that. So can you, one, tell us what a social listening tool is and why you think that some clients may be hesitant to use those? So, so you know, everybody is out there posting all sorts of information, um, opinions about brands, about the state of the world, everything. And uh, there are lots of different platforms that are able to monitor that data. And a lot of clients over the last decade have bought into these platforms and are you know, basically coding the information that's being generated. So you have all this publicly available data, it is being coded using AI and 
evaluated for how much volume is out there and what's the sentiment associated with that. And there's all different levels of, you know, how sensitive these tools are and, you know, how much you want to pay attention. Uh, but as you can imagine, you know, there, there's a lot of information that can be gleaned. Now, of course, we all know that the people who are chattering are either going to be your most passionate uh, brand loyalists or the people who absolutely hate you. And there's going to be not a lot in between. Uh, so you do want to take it all with a grain of salt. I think what's happened in my experience, at least over the last decade, is that the social listening tools have been adopted by the companies, but generally by uh, their social media marketing teams within the organization or potentially their customer service teams that they want to monitor and make sure that you know people are posting something on their Facebook page that they're responding to it. So the tools are being used by those teams, not necessarily the consumer insights team with whom I'd be working. And so the newer area for insights teams is bringing that information into our understanding of brand, our understanding of uh, relationships with your organization. And so it, it becomes a new level of analysis and a, a new lens into understanding the, the landscape. And that's a lot of stuff to pull together in your role as a VP, right? So <laughs> what would you say is like one of the most challenging parts of being in market research? Like, especially um, as a client manager, what are some difficulties you face? Well, so as the client manager, I get to have the wonderful job of coming up with these great ideas and saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And the client says, yes, let's do it. And then I can go back to the research team and say, okay, now go figure this out. Which is, you know, I don't have the, that challenge, um, although if I'm out there selling things that we can't actually execute, that's not going to be good for my client, it's not going to be good for my research team, and it's not going to be good for me. Um, so it, I think my challenge is making sure that even though I can come up with it, my client can come up with it, is it still based in reality of what can be done and delivered and delivered in a timely fashion and within a budget that fits the client's needs. So I think those are the, the key challenges. Like you said, you're the one that comes up with the ideas and you tell the researchers, hey, execute this, right? So have you acted <laughs> as a hiring manager for um, researchers? Uh, so I have, but the way that my, my current company is structured, the research team does not report into the client management team. So I'm not responsible for hiring those guys. Um, it's really a, more of a partnership, but all sorts of dotted lines and making sure that, you know, we're open and honest with each other. Because in my role, I'm in what we call the commercial organization and the research team is in the global operations. Got it. So you're not really at your current role. You're not working with the researchers like on a daily basis. Oh, I am. I just, they don't report into me. Got it. Okay. So when you're working with these researchers to you, what qualities do researchers have that make you think, okay, he or she is a really good researcher? Attention to detail. No doubt about it. Um, I think that if you're going to be doing anything in this, or in this industry, uh, paying attention to the details, it really matters. Um, the other two things that 
come to mind, and this goes beyond just being the researcher, but anybody within the, or, within the research organization, I feel like having a point of view, clients always wanna hear your point of view. And uh, so does senior management, right? Nobody wants you to be wishy-washy. Not everybody's going to agree with your point of view, but having a point of view and a rationale for that is so, so important and gives you so much more credibility than if you just sort of shrug and wait for somebody to tell you. Um, the other thing is having a solution. And I think you know, so many research projects, there's so many details, things will get missed and that is a problem. And being able to deal with the problems, come up with a solution and be proactive about applying the solution is really important. Uh, somebody had said this to me when I was starting out and I just said it to someone I work with the other day that you know the, the problems are going to happen with these projects. I mean, we're, we're basically, this is truly a social science. We are trying to fit something like you said qualitative, but we're trying to fit art into the scientific box and that's hard. And so problems are going to happen. It's how you solve the problems that people will remember. And I think if you can be upfront, transparent, proactive, you'll be successful. And did you say that you're trying to fit art into a box? Is that what you said? Yeah. Like, you know, it's when you think of when you were in school and you had a science class and you followed the scientific method, it, everything was so fact-based. There was no you know, well, I feel this way, therefore it must be right. Like you followed the system. And in social sciences, which market research is one, we're trying to apply those scientific methods to, to people's, you know, opinions about brands <laughs> and people's ideas. So we're trying to sort of create it as a science when there is so much art to it. Yeah, so you would say like market research is like a balance of art in the sense that you're trying to understand people, right, who are inherently unpredictable. And we don't always know what we think, even exactly. even, even if people ask us, right? Like you said, it's also scientific. You adhere by the scientific method because you have these hypotheses, you test them, um, and you want to have exactly. these, these findings standardized. Exactly. So let's go a little bit um, further out. So we talked about um, what traits you would you would advise that good researchers have. Um, so uh, I know I met you through a program called WIRE, which stands for Women in Research, and you've been involved with that for some time. So can you tell us more about what you do with WIRE and why you actually joined the organization? Sure. Um, so, so WIRE is an amazing organization. And when Kristen Luck first started it, I was paying attention, although not active. Um, you know, I think I had signed up for the email distribution and it was just a, a really interesting idea to me that women within our industry were developing this community. Um, I, I think in, as an industry, it's an interesting one because we have so many women in the agencies, uh, even on the client side or the corporate side, we have a lot of women in the, in the industry. As the 
teams get more senior, as uh, tenure in the industry increases, you lose women. And so a lot of the decision makers are still male and women are, you know, basically sort of relegated to these more junior roles or relegated to uh, not even, I'm on what I call the supplier side, but like the suppliers of the supplies, suppliers. So they're so far removed from being client facing, from really driving the industry forward, from the advanced analytics. Um, you know, in marketing science, it tends to skew male. So the higher paying jobs, the decision-making jobs tend to skew male. And uh, that of course was a concern for me. And certainly in my private life, and even when uh, I was a teacher, I've always been an advocate for women, always very active in uh, advancing the cause of women. And so, yeah, started paying attention to wire and a couple of years ago, actually reached out and said, you know, I, I, I know that there's this uh, very active chapter in New York City, uh, but we have so many research agencies up in Connecticut, and it's really hard, particularly for women who tend to be in Connecticut, in suburbia, more married, more have kids. It's hard to get to happy hours and networking events in Manhattan at like 5.30 on a Wednesday. And also because they're not necessarily client-facing people who are going to client meetings, they're more kind of stuck at their desk all day. So I said, wouldn't it be great if we did something in Connecticut? And that of course evolved into us planning an event in Connecticut and uh, developing a wonderful coalition of people who uh, I always refer to as our steering committee uh, based here in Southwestern Connecticut. And I think it, it just started getting off the ground at the end of 2019. We had our first event and it was awesome. And we were planning something for this past March. And then of course COVID happened. So stay tuned for this spring when uh, hopefully we can get back out there. Yeah, and you made a really important point. So there's a trend in many industries where you have women that are starting in the junior level roles, but they're not quite making it uh, up the ladder, so to speak, or through yeah. the pipeline to the C-suite. And like you said, you've also noticed that over the course of your time as a market researcher, why do you think, in your opinion, why do you think that's the case, at least as it pertains to market research? Yeah, I mean, marketing and marketing research tend to be industries that are lots of long hours and uh, crazy work <laughs> schedules and uh, needing to be in random places at random times, not necessarily the most conducive to, uh, to being a, a parent. And you know the reality is that so much of uh, not just being a parent, but being a couple, uh, a lot of household responsibilities fall to women. And so, you know, that is a challenge. The other challenge, of course, is the income. And while I would love to say that this is an industry that's going to pay you really well, just stick with it, um, you know, versus some other industries that are out there, marketing and marketing research don't pay as well as if you're, you know, going into finance or banking or something. So you've been really successful in not only pivoting from like being being pivoting from education to market research, right? But you've obviously been successful in moving up the ladder within market research to be at the senior VP level. So what do you think made it work for you in particular? Well, I am fortunate to have a really good partner in my husband. Um, he's very supportive and 
encourages me to stick with it. Um, you know, so he is very hands-on with our children, but also just, you know, like I had said back when I was questioning, did I go the right route? He was very supportive and, you know, encouraged me to pursue the career. So I, I think that that is key. Uh, the other thing is just recognizing that you, know, you can be responsible to a certain extent for your own destiny. And so while I'm very fortunate and lucky that I can make choices and I have choices, not everybody does, um, I think taking advantage of that and not just putting sort of letting myself think, oh, I'm stuck here is really important too. And so let's pretend, let's go back in a time machine. Let's pretend that we're talking to 18 year old or even 20 year old Michelle. What do you say to her about her career? Uh, I think as a kid, as a college kid, I didn't expect to have as big of a career as I've been able to have. And, you know, I was in school and I fully expected that I was going to graduate and get a really good job. And, you know, at the time I thought it was going to be teaching, but, you know, I also at that point expected that I would eventually get married, have kids and work part-time or do something else. Because quite honestly, at that point, working from home wasn't a real thing. You know, you, you didn't have the flexibility that you have now. Um, people didn't have laptops, like you couldn't bring your work home in the evening. So it just seemed like, you know, the, the path was that you'd have to take off a few years if you were going to raise a family. And so that's kind of what I expected. And even back then I knew if you take off a few years, that means you're not going to advance uh, to the more senior levels. So with that said, um, at this point in your career now, how, like how do how do you think that market research will continue to develop? So I know you mentioned in terms of careers as a whole, working from home has enabled you um, personally to be able to have a big career and also have a family as well. But like, what what are some other things? What what are some other trends you see happening in market research? Whether it's from the perspective of being a researcher, a client manager, or just as a professional. So I think. You know, as a professional, it's the working or ability to work around the clock. Uh, so as we become more global, um, as we have all this connected technology, you know, it, more and more, no matter what industry you're in, it seems like you're expected to be able to work at odd hours. But the flip of that is it's okay to take off in the middle of the day uh, if you have, you know, a, you want to go golfing or you have to go to a doctor's appointment. Like that's so much more acceptable now than it was 10 years ago. And, you know, the, I think there's a recognition that you're also doing global calls at two o'clock in the morning from time to time. So it, it's a balance. Um, and then in terms of our industry more specifically, I think that the, the evolution of the analytics is really exciting. And uh, that's where we need to, to go and grow and push our industry more. Because I think that 
if we don't stay at the forefront, the availability of data to literally everybody in the organization means they don't need to come to their insights team and ask the questions anymore. And so the insights team really has to evolve and it's through the use of analytics, the use of you know, data visualization tools and those sorts of things to provide actual insight, not just data is, it, it's almost cliche, but it's so important. So it sounds like the two biggest trends for you would be like more so of continuing to have a work-life balance in the industry, right? Like you said, you can take golf in the middle of the day and go play golf or like run your <laughs> errand. Never done. <laughs> right. For the record, Med, she's never done that in Metrics Lab. You no. know how to play golf. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like you said, you can have more time and do what you want to do and be a more balanced person. And also you mentioned analytics as well. Um, you also mentioned that if analytics becomes, I guess, too widespread or too democratized, that teams may not feel like they have to rely on the consumer insights team. So that's an interesting balance there, right? Like you want to be able to share these findings and make the data accessible, but not make it so accessible that you don't have a job. Like you said, so it's definitely a balancing act. And I think it's not just the accessibility, but the ability to interpret the data. And that is a unique skill that not everybody has. And so it's on us to, as an industry to, uh, to, to demonstrate our expertise and the ability to use the data in an insightful way, in a meaningful way, uh, and to make sure that people understand this isn't something everybody can do. It's a unique skill. Right. And so what really separates um, someone being a researcher and someone just looking at research is being able to understand, one, what you're looking at, being able to interpret those insights and being able to apply them. That's where the expertise comes in. And that's what makes you a market researcher or a consumer insights professional. Yep, exactly. And oh. I, I, not just a consumer insights professional, but a valuable one. And at this point in your career, how do you continue to develop professionally and stay on top of what's actually happening in the industry? Because once you've made it to like a senior level, what is there to do next? How do you develop? Uh, so it's a fun industry because it is always evolving and changing. So, you know, the way that we're doing research now is different than how we did it 10 years ago and different than 10 years before that. Um, so in order to stay on top of your game, you have to just stay up on trends. Um, so there's that element of always keeping an eye on what are the new methodologies, not being afraid to try something new to engage with people in different companies, in different roles, to understand what they're up to, just connecting to people, you know, meeting you through WIRE is a great way for me to say, oh, okay, you know, what's going on in your side of, of the industry? Because the, the industry itself has become so broad. You know, our jobs are so different, but, you know, we're still connected in this overall insights and analytics world. Uh, so I think that that's all really important. Yeah, exactly. And market research and UX research are like cousins. There's a lot of overlap anyway. <laughs> so in the in the closing and last few minutes here, my last question for you. So remember my audience, um, I anticipate will be mostly um, prospective researchers. So people interested in either being UX researchers, academic mm -hmm. researchers, market researchers. So do you have any thoughts for people like that that are trying to break into market research, let's say? What, do you, what advice do you have for them? Uh, so I think, well, first off, as a general rule, people in this industry are curious and 
enjoy learning. And so if you're not a curious person, this is not going to be for you. Um, but it is something that I very much appreciate about the people that I've been able to work with and that I work with now. Uh, it's just this always thirst for learning something new, trying something new. So I would you know, definitely encourage people who have that curious um, lifelong learner type of mindset to come into the industry. Uh, and in terms of where to go within the space, there's so many different areas that you can delve into. Um, I think analytics is really exciting and growing and that would be something that you know I would encourage my own children to explore. But certainly it's uh, the marriage of the creative mind with that analytic mind is so powerful. So I would suggest pursuing that. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does make sense. Like you said, becoming a market researcher or researcher in general is like trying to be Picasso, but also trying to be Einstein at the same time. <laughs> trying to mix those two, right brain, left brain. I always appreciate how Michelle always gives me substantive answers. She's so engaging and she has such a robust view of the market research industry. She understands the research itself, but excels in client management as well. This is the balancing act of being a client-facing market research professional. Like Michelle discussed, market research is a blend of art and science. It's a balancing act. If you miss anything, visit yizzyresearch.com for notes from this episode. Thanks for listening. Subscribe for updates on new episodes. If you are interested in sponsoring this podcast, or if you are looking to hire someone to help you understand your users and your customers, visit yizzyresearch.com. Follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at yizzyresearch. That's Y-Z-Z-I research. Bye for now.